everyone. Thanks for checking out the Citizens Podcast. We are the high school student ministry at Maranatha Bible Church, and we meet on Sundays at 11 a.m. in the student wing. If you enjoy this podcast, we would love it if you posted it on your Instagram story and tag at NBC Citizens. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good? Wow. I'll try that again. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Glad to know you guys are with me. Um, thank you guys so much for being here. Uh, I'm excited to continue our series this morning, and I want to get right into it because, as Jeff said, uh, we are <laughs> only allotted a certain amount of time, and I want to make sure I don't go over too much. But again, if you are new here for the first time, I did meet uh, some of you uh, this morning. Thank you for being here. Welcome. I uh, m- want to just say one more time, you are very welcome here, and I'm grateful that you have come here. I'm Pastor Brian, and if you have any questions about anything, uh, if you have even, um, for those of you that are here and have been here for a while now, uh, please come uh, find me afterwards, and feel free to uh, come ask not only myself, but any of the leaders here. Uh, we'd love to sit down and chat with you and pray with you as well. Um, this morning, we are going to be looking at the book of Acts again. Uh, We started this series last week on the book of Acts where we discussed uh, chapter 1. And this morning we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2. And you can turn there. You can get ready to be in uh, that chapter. We're going to have some of the verses there on the screen so you can follow along. But Acts um, is all about, and I I would say the central theme here is the multiplication of the gospel. And that's really what we're going to be looking at this morning right, this gospel-centered multiplication that happens and begins here. Uh, As we looked at uh, chapter 1 last week, we honed in specifically on verse 8. We looked at a few different verses, 1 through 11, and then spent most of our time looking at verse 8. If you were with us, uh, you would know, as we already said, that this is really the key verse in the book of Acts, and it drives everything that comes afterwards. If you weren't here, don't worry. It's going to be on the screen, and I'll read it for us, and even for the ones that were here uh, as a refresher. But uh, verse 8 of chapter 1 says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Again, this is the purpose of the book of Acts, and everything that happens revolves around this promise, the fulfillment of this promise and this command that is given. Um, The Holy Spirit as we read here, would come upon God's people and through his power he would enable believers to become witnesses of God for the good news of Jesus Christ. Not only in Jerusalem, which was their hometown, but their surrounding communities, uh, all Judea and all Samaria, and then past that, beyond that, all of the earth. And that still applies to us, right? As a matter of fact, that's exactly what happened. This calling and this command was fulfilled, and we'll continue to see that in the book of Acts. But it started with them right when the Holy Spirit came upon God's people. This narrative continues to repeat itself over and over again. How it went from Jerusalem to Judea, and it scattered like wildfire throughout uh, all of uh, all of the world. It ended up going to all parts of the world. And through history, we've seen how that's uh, proven to be true. 
all up until this very moment, right? How the gospel went from there all the way to this beautiful place we call Akron, Ohio. And it's reached us here today. And the same gospel that we're reading about, the same gospel that we see in the Bible in the New Testament here is the same gospel that we believe today. And I highlighted this last week, and I want to just stress it again. Remember that this church, right, the early church, it did ha have anything going for it in the sense that when we think of a church that is successful here in, in the present time, when we think of the things that would facilitate or enable a church to succeed and to grow, we think of what? They need a building for themselves, right? They need a place to meet. They need some kind of social status. They need uh, money, right? If they don't have the money to uh, support their team, support their building, uh, there's no way they're going to flourish and succeed. And we know that <laughs> the church here, the early church, had nothing like that. And yet, we see that they exponentially began to grow and to multiply. And we think, you know, how does that happen? Why does it happen? When, when it doesn't seem like there was any reason for Christianity to succeed logically or tangibly in the ways that we would think of now of any faith or anything, um, we know that the reason that, did, uh, that, did, that did, this did happen, excuse me, was because of this was because the church had the power of the Holy Spirit energizing its ministry. That they were a people who were ignited by the Spirit of God. And again, this is the emphasis, the central theme of this book, that the Holy Spirit now indwells those who believe the gospel. And what that means is the Holy Spirit is inside of those who repent, who turn from their sin, who realize the reality of their brokenness, their hopelessness, realize that the penalty of their sin is death, that they fall short. Nobody in this room is perfect. Nobody to ever live was ever perfect. We are all in the same boat except for one individual, one person, and that was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was sent here to this earth, fully man and fully God to live the life that we could never live and pay the penalty of our sin through his sacrificial death on the cross. And he didn't stay dead, but he resurrected. And he died as a propitiation for our sins. We are no longer separated from God. We no longer have to be separated if we believe that message. We have the free gift of salvation by grace through faith. And we're not only forgiven, but this truth, this gospel that we're, we're talking about here this morning, the same thing that the church, this church here, the early church and our church is founded upon and built upon, the same thing that gives us hope. And not only, it not only redeems us, reconciles us with God, we're not only forgiven, but we can have hope of an abundant and eternal life with God. And we can have a relationship with him today as well. Whoever believes in the gospel and accepts this, this can be true for you. And this is the gospel that starts to be proclaimed and shared here in this chapter, in chapter 2. If you have your Bibles again, uh, you can open up to chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at how God multiplies his gospel this morning. 
When we look at chapter two and you start to read these first couple of verses, you see in the first 13 verses, something called the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost. This was a Jewish feast. Um, this Jewish feast was actually uh, 50 days after the Passover. And what they were celebrating here at the day of Pentecost in this specific time in the celebration was the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And this was also called the day of first fruits. Now, the Jewish tradition was um, that you were uh, actually celebrating the giving of the law as well because they believed that uh, the law was given to the people of God, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, on Pentecost. And I think that um, David uh, Guzik, pastor here, he, he says something really interesting. Um, because we'll see what happens on this very day, uh, but we also can look back at history and see what happened in the past. He says this, on the, day, uh, on the day of Pentecost in the Old Testament, Israel received the law. And on the, New Tes- and on the New Testament day of Pentecost, the church received the spirit of grace and fullness. And that's kind of what's going to happen here as we look at these couple of verses. We'll see that once a day when they celebrated the law, now a day where they receive the Spirit of God in fullness. And uh, this was uh, completed. It was ten days after uh, Jesus had ascended at this point, as we're picking up on this story, right? And while they're gathered together... If you have your Bibles, you can read this. And it says here, I'm not going to read the verses for you, but I'll paint a picture for you. As they're gathered together in the upper room, suddenly, out of nowhere, seemingly, they're, they're not expecting this, right? They're sitting down, which, is, which means that they're not expecting this to happen. They wouldn't have been praying sitting down. And so whilst they're sitting, out of nowhere, this wind just comes from heaven. And this loud noise uh, fills the room and the Holy Spirit suddenly comes upon them and a tongue of fire appears to them and rests on them. This is what is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John MacArthur says this about it. It is the very blast of God's breath. So as you imagine all these disciples, all these people are gathered together in the upper room and all of a sudden this loud bang happens and all of a sudden they see this tongue of fire that rests on them and immediately they start speaking in different languages. They start to speak in, in different tongues. Now, because of this, because of this crazy phenomenon and because of this loud noise, of course, if you hear a loud bang, you're probably going to be attracted to it. And so people start to, start to be drawn into what's going on. There's a lot of commotion, of course. People are like, wait, wait, what's happening? And they start to hear things that they would have been familiar with. They would have heard their native tongue and would have been confused, right? They're confused, perplexed. Well, how is he speaking this language? What's going on? How does he even know that language? And the only conclusion that the people around them can come up with is they must be drunk. These people are absolutely hammered. There is no way that there's uh, any reason for them to be speaking in these different tongues or acting this way. They must be on that new stuff, right? They say they, they got to be on this new wine is what they say. And so they're, they're trying to figure out what's happening. And the only conclusion they can come up with is they're drunk. 
That's the only explanation. Now, what I do want to clarify before we kind of get into this more, um, and you'll see that Paul talks about it and explains what's going on, but when we talk about speaking in tongues, there are different things that you might associate with that, um, or you might even ask, right? These people might have, might have been looking at the situation and what's happening. The people uh, in today's day and age, as we read this passage, we might see uh, an event like this and be like, wow, that's amazing. I want to see this happen. When is this going to happen? When, when was the baptism of the Holy Spirit going to come? When are we going to start speaking in tongues? Can I, should I do these things? Right? I talked about last week. Some of the stuff we'll read is prescriptive, meaning that it is applicable. Some of the stuff is just historical context and information that we see. When we're talking about tongues, a lot of the times we think of different things. But I want to make it very clear this morning as it is very undeniable and undebatable in this text, this is not referring to, uh, you know, utterances of the Spirit, uh, a prayer language that people will talk about and say as a gift between you and God. That is not what's happening. Those are things that we have to address by looking at different passages, but this is not one of them. They're not speaking in... Um, you know, a, a language that seems like it's gibberish that we can't necessarily understand. That's not what's happening here. There are actually speaking languages. Each and every one of them. When the Holy Spirit rests upon them, they start to speak in these actual languages. It would be as though all of a sudden I'm speaking English with you and the Holy Spirit would come upon me and I'd start to speak a different language. Does anybody here speak a different language other than English? Anybody? What language do you speak? French and Italian? That would be like, all of a sudden, I'm teaching here, I'm going through this, and, um, and I would start speaking in French. Jésus t'aime. Right? You know that, right? That sounds good. And I start speaking in, sp in French. And you would say probably like, il parle français, right? He speaks French. Well, that was pretty impressive. I know, huh? Wow. Right? Um, you would be kind of confused and not really understand what's happening. Right? They're just convening, and all of a sudden, a different language starts coming up, and you recognize it because it's your native language, and you know it, and you understand. That's what's happening here. They're speaking these very well-known languages that other people would have picked up on and would have been curious about, and they start to get drawn in. I know that I speak Portuguese and Spanish. Every time I hear somebody speak Portuguese, it's very rare here in Ohio, but every time I hear somebody speak Portuguese, I am drawn to it, right, because it's familiar and because that reminds me of home, and that's my native tongue. And so every time I hear it, I'm drawn and attracted by it. Similarly, here I would expect that this is what's taking place. But again, remember, they're confused as to why this is happening. The only conclusion that they have is they must be drunk. But Peter, he suddenly stands up, and whilst they're amazed, confused, and perplexed, he starts to share a sermon with them. He starts to share this message that would result in 3,000 people coming to know Christ. And that's what I want to look at today. That's what I want to spend a bulk of our time in this morning, looking at uh, 
key things, three key things that we can highlight and take from in understanding the multiplication that is taking place here. The sermon that he preaches at Pentecost, it begins in verse 14. So if you have your Bibles again, you can turn there. I'll be reading it from the screen. Um, But this is what he says. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Um, now, if you're familiar with this um, group of people, right, these were not men that were known for having spines of steel, as Matt Chandler would say. Right? These were not incredibly brave people, um, bold people. But all of a sudden... Peter, he just stands up, and he's not afraid of anything, right? He, he begins to glorify God in this way, along with all these other people, and they start to speak in these different tongues. And then he, out of that crowd, then starts to address the people. He provides an explanation for them. Although they think that they're drunk, Peter goes, hey, guys, we're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. That's what he says. That's what, that's what it means here when he says the third hour of the day. In this festival, you wouldn't even have to start, you, would, you couldn't even start eating or drinking past a certain time. And so he says, how could we be drunk? It's only 9 a.m. And so he tells them, we're not drunk. And as he starts to speak with them, all of a sudden, we see that these people stop speaking in these different languages. It starts to subside. And spontaneously, he starts to preach the gospel. He starts to preach a message, right? This is spontaneous, meaning abrupt, sudden. He wasn't preparing this. It wasn't like me that studied throughout the week and gathered information, put it together, so that way I can open up God's word and share you the truths of God's word. He was prepared, not because he prepped and studied, but because he lived a life alongside Jesus. And that ministry equipped him and prepared him for this very moment when he then steps up and he preaches the gospel to these people. He shares these truths with these people. And at this moment, you see a noticeable change in Peter, a man who only a few days ago was denying ever knowing Jesus Now, with the Holy Spirit, we can see that he is transformed. The first thing that I want us to note here is that God meets us where we are. God meets us where we are, whether that's physically or spiritually. Remember, again, this was totally unexpected. These people came to a festival. I don't know how many of you ever gone to a festival or concert before, And if it's not a Christian festival, then I would assume that you're not going there and expecting somebody, a group of people, to start speaking a bunch of different languages than one guy to step up and start preaching the gospel to you after a loud bang happens. Uh, This is is not what they expected. You know, I, I can't claim to know exactly what the people that showed up would have been looking forward to, but I know this wasn't it. This was not on the agenda, and yet this takes place. And you see the moment the gospel becomes real to you, one thing I want to highlight is this. That is not predicated on any of your circumstances. 
The moment the gospel becomes real to you is not predicated on the circumstances around you. One of the parables that I've taught in here before in the past, if you were here, I hope you remember it and you remember the vivid image and representation that that father was, our heavenly father was. But the parable of the prodigal son, it illustrates a father for us who, who loves two sons and one who leaves, one who never leaves, and yet both are so very distant from the father. When when reconciling with his younger son, if you don't know the story, the younger son, he asked for his inheritance and he asks for it now before his father ever passes away and he receives it from the father, runs away to a distant land and eventually what happens? He squanders it, wastes it, throws it all away. He gambles, doesn't pay out and yet now that he's alone, having squandered, wasted everything, lived a reckless life, having degraded himself to eat with pigs, which was incredibly frowned upon in that culture. He's eating trash, essentially. He's alone. He decides to come back to the Father. And dirty and all, disgraced as all, he returns. And he doesn't return in a fancy, blanged-out chariot. Dad, look at me. You didn't believe in me, but watch. I got this, I got this, I actually tripled my inheritance. I got all these things, you should have believed in me. No, he comes back and the reality is that he has absolutely nothing. And when he returns, he says to his father, Father, I have sinned against you, heaven, against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And yet, the father has compassion on him. Dirty and filthy as he is, he did not demand that he hit the showers before he hugged him, before he kisses him, embraces him. He doesn't say, hey, go, go take a bath or go apologize to so-and-so, go apologize to them, go do this, go do that. He doesn't give him any prerequisites, any qualifications. Instead, he doesn't even let him finish asking for forgiveness before he orders that all of his best things be brought to his son. And he restores his position as his son. And that is how God is. God, he meets us where we are, regardless of where that may be. When God says the gospel is for everybody, when we read that here, it does not mean that you have to change your life and do certain things, that you have to be in the right place, that it has to be here in church. That in order to be right with God, this is where it has to be. It's not true. These people were going to a festival to celebrate, to, to, to drink, and to party, to have fun, and yet God reaches them there. It doesn't matter where you are, no matter your circumstances, physically or spiritually, regardless of where you are this morning, the Lord meets you where you are. And if you haven't already encountered him, I want to let you know that even if you don't have it all together, you can experience the joy of salvation today. Just as Peter says in verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now as you continue to read, in the next couple of verses, he goes over Joel 2. He quotes 
um, the Old Testament here in order to explain what's taking place. And eventually, as you get to verse 22, he starts to introduce the focus of this sermon, which is Jesus, the, the resurrected Messiah. Verse 22, this is what he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. See, we see that he says that a lot. He addresses them. He says, Please listen. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves known. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of the lawless men. And interestingly enough, if you go to verse 36, just a few verses down, he says this again. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He says that not once. He says it twice to a crowd of Jewish people around 60 days following the death of Jesus. You killed Jesus. Now, he is confronting them with this harsh reality, and I think this is the second point that I want to highlight here in regards to multiplication, is that God tells us the truth about ourselves. And this is, this is kind of bizarre in a way that he would do this, right? To be bold enough to do something like this. Um, <laughs> he, he, to a group of thousands of people, Right, I already kind of already, spo- uh, I already spoiled the, the end of the story here and told you that 3,000 people would come to know Christ as their Savior. Now, if 3,000 people accepted Jesus, imagine how many were actually there. Right? I don't know if everybody was saved, but um, at the very least, there were 3,000. So there was a lot of people present, and yet he goes up, and in front of the multitude of people, he says, You killed Jesus. You are responsible now, I don't know how he has the courage to say something like that. Um, I mean, he just saw people uh, kill Jesus. Sure, imagine if there were the people that were directly in, involved in this. Uh, to, say, to say that to a murderer or say that to people that were directly involved with Jesus getting murdered, that they were the people responsible, right? To say that, you've got to be pretty, pretty <laughs> ambitious to say that to somebody's face. But there's also people there um, that probably had nothing to do with Jesus' death. And yet he is still addressing everybody here. He has no problem saying that they killed Jesus. Um, even the ones that weren't in town, maybe, while Jesus was, was killed. Right, you know, if that was me, I feel like I'd definitely be that guy. I'd be the guy in the back, like, he's not talking about me. I was on vacation with my family. He's talking about you. You know, he's talking about my friend or something like that. I'm sure there were people like that, kind of confused as to what he was saying. I didn't do anything. I don't know what you're talking about. I wasn't even here. Some people didn't even know. I mean, they probably knew who Jesus was. But they didn't know what was going on. So how could he say that? How could he just address this entire group of people and say that you are responsible for Jesus? How can he accuse them? And does that apply to us? Now, are we responsible? To some degree, very much so. We are responsible. The reason we can be guilty of this is seen very clearly in the book of Romans. And if you were here with our study uh, throughout the book of Romans, um, great. You pick up on some of this stuff and you guys know 
uh, why, and you guys have seen that and, and read that. But if you haven't, let me just fill you in really quick. Romans 3, verse 23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means everyone is guilty, no matter how good or how bad you are. The good, uh, the good people, sure, you might do good things. I want to tell you, even you are broken. This room might be filled with good people, but nobody here is perfect. Everyone falls short of the glory of God. Without God, each and every one of us are in equal standing. We all are guilty of preferring the creation rather than the creator. We're all guilty of thinking that we're smarter than God. Nobody here may have the audacity to say it, but your actions do. If you look at Romans 1.28, it says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to the debased mind to do what they ought not to be done. We sometimes forget to acknowledge God, who he is and what he has done, and the penalty for our sin is death, which we see in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. However, as this verse goes on to say, we have hope for the wages of sin is death, but the gift The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So although we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it says in verse 23 of Romans chapter 3, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You and I are guilty. There is no two ways around it. But God has made us right meaning that there isn't anything that we have earned. It's nothing that you can do that can earn you favor with God. It is only through faith in Christ and what he has done through his sacrificial death in which he was a propitiation for our sins. Right? That word propitiation means to pacify the wrath of something, taking care of a penalty right? that that offense caused. It says here that this was shown to God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance that he passed over his former sins. Despite falling short, God says that we are justified. God says we're justified by grace through Jesus who gave himself for you and for me as a propitiation for our sins. He absorbed, meaning that he absorbed the penalty for our sins on the cross. Not only that, but he absorbed God's wrath Upon himself, towards all the rebellion that we ensue, that we cause, right? All of our rebellion. And when we understand that, we see clearly that we are, in fact, responsible for his death. That you and I play a, a, a big part in the death of Jesus because he came for you and for me. God tells you the truth about yourself. He tells you the truth about me, and praise God that he does. Praise God that God is an honest God, and he tells you the truth about yourself, the truth that you deep down know to be true about yourself. You may tell yourself you're a good person, but each and every one of us know that we are broken. Uh, Pastor Matt Chandler, he also says this, and I love the way he says this. He says, the freedom that is found when he tells you the truth about yourself is that you already know those things to be true, and now you have a grid for what's gone wrong. The problem is we don't, we know we're broken. We know we're messed up, and some of us may not like to hear that, 
But how good is it that we have a God that tells us that truth? That doesn't just say, oh, you're great, you're fine. What then? What do we do with all the brokenness inside of us? What do you do with all the anxiety, the doubt, the anger, the bitterness, the, the, the pride that's inside of you? If there's just someone or a God that says, no, you're good and you're great and you're perfect. No, he acknowledges and knows that you are broken and you are hopeless without him. And because he tells you the truth, you know what the solution is. And you have the answer. And it is God. As you continue to read verse 29, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that both died and was buried in his tomb is with us this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God was sworn with an oath to him and that he would set one of his ascendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up in all that we are witnesses. Christ's victory over hell and death, his victory over the grave is now our victory. And his righteousness is imputed on us as believers. He has absorbed God's wrath and his righteousness becomes our righteousness. When God sees us, he sees his son for those that believe and put their faith in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who know no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When, we, when the gospel is proclaimed, we respond. And that's the next thing I want to highlight. The last thing here in this point is that God's gospel demands a response. As you see in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were profoundly impacted and moved by Peter's words. And they said to the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So Peter's unpacking this, what Jesus had done for them. And because of the guilt that they had, along with the forgiveness that was offered, they were cut to the heart, and they asked, what do we do next? What do we do now? The great crowd listening to Peter was deeply moved, and he answered them by saying that we should respond. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the free gift, or you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter here is giving them something to do. This means that we must do something to be saved. We must do something to follow Jesus. It doesn't just happen. When God is working in our hearts, he wants us to come to him, to respond. Where the gospel is preached, we must respond. Matthew Poole says this, conversion, if real, goes further than profession and is in heart and deed and not in speech and word only. But apart from conversion too, I just want to highlight this and address those that know the gospel, are familiar with it, and even have believed the gospel. I want to challenge you this morning to not become indifferent to it, to not grow numb to the gospel. You know, to the point where God's word, every time you come in here and you open up God's word or you read it or you hear it, you're unmoved has no profound significance or impact on your life. You have lost the wonder for scripture because you don't act on it. You come here and you hear the gospel, you hear God's word every Sunday and you don't do anything with it. It makes no impact on your life. It does nothing to you. 
You doing nothing with God's word and the gospel is doing something. It's going in the wrong direction. The more you do that, the more you become numb to the gospel. The more your heart becomes hardened to it. And you may fool me, you may fool everybody in this room, but I will tell you this, there's one person you won't fool, and that is God. So ask yourself, if that is you, how long are you gonna play that game? Not let the gospel really take root in your life. Because I wanna, I, I, I seriously and genuinely wanna challenge you to take hold of that. Because you never know. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Uh, some of you, and I, I don't want to go into details, and I'll spare you that, but some of you have faced that reality this week. Some of you have seen that this week. Some more than others have been impacted this week and know what I'm talking about. You understand and you know based on the terrible news that we received, this tragic incident that happened, as we even said this morning, at Lake. You don't know what's gonna happen. You're not guaranteed tomorrow, and you have no idea. If I were to ask you here, you think your time is up, nobody in this room would raise their hand because y'all think you're young and you have plenty of life. And praise God, that's the truth. But you don't know. I don't know. And so I wanna challenge you to be people that when you hear God's word, when you hear the gospel, you're not hardened to it, but instead, like these people as you continue to read here, they are full of continual confession. They are continuously pursuing God. They are seeking him repeatedly, seeking out community as well. That is the kind of people that we should be and we ought to be. That is reflected and seen at the end of this chapter. I'm closing here just three points that I want to challenge you with, three things that we can learn from this church. Once they hear this good news, once Paul tells them to be baptized, they're all in. And this is maybe the prettiest it'll be. It kind of gets a little muddy as we continue to read the book of Acts. There's turmoil, there's things that happen. But at this point, there's things that we can learn from the church. Three things, that they were devoted, that they were glad, and they were generous. They were devoted to the teaching of God's word and to one another. They were so devoted to each other that whenever they heard about anything that a brother or a sister needed, they sold their things and gave to them and provided for them. And I know that's easier said than done for us, uh, but imagine if we were like that, devoted not only to God's word, but to each and every person in this room, that if there was a need, we would be willing to sacrifice for one another not just to be devoted though, right? We can do those things and not really care to do it. We don't really wanna do it, but I'm gonna do it anyways. These people were glad to do it. They were glad and they were generous. They were devoted people who gladly shared and gave generously. Let that be the truth of our group here. I pray that that's the traits that people associate with you and with me. And when people see this group, they associate us with being people who are devoted, who are glad and who are generous, who love the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for this morning where we get to open up your word and, and, and talk about 
the beginning of your church. I pray, Father, that we would be convicted um, by these truths, Lord. If there's anybody here who doesn't know you, I pray that you would speak to their hearts or soften their hearts. I pray, Father, that you would encourage us today to be devoted followers of Christ, devoted to you and to our brothers and sisters, to, to be glad and have joyful hearts and to be generous, Lord. We thank you again for all that you do, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.